right. Great to have you here this Sunday morning. Thank you guys that helped me with the little Zoe surprise. If you missed it, we threw a little party for Zoe's on Friday. I bought a big sheet cake because they're closing this week, and we thought we'd celebrate their staff, and a bunch of y'all showed up. We ate some cake. We had a, uh, this is how planning goes. I, I got one of their to-go boxes and cut a little hole in the top of it, but we put a bunch of cash in it, and so we gave it to them afterwards. They were thrilled. They uh, came, took their picture with me, which I'm honored. Like, all the people came out of the back, and we got in this big group hug. I, that's what cash will do. No, I'm just kidding. It, it, was, uh, it, was a cool way, it was a cool way to love them. Hey, if you're new to Radius, this is kind of what we do. Uh, we sing a little bit. We talk about God's Word for a little bit, and we sing a little bit more. And this is part of what we do. We gather. It's a great place to, to invite folks. So next week, you want to invite somebody else, we got, we got seats, seats available. And then, as Chris said, groups. That's kind of how we get to know each other. I always tell people, like, when you show up, when you go to the hospital, you, you want your group folks to come show up. If I show up, I go, oh, it's bad if I'm here, right? Like, like <laughs> anyway, if I show up, don't freak out if I show up. But nonetheless, uh, but we named ourselves Radius, and we simplify the way we operate being this in groups so that we can know our neighbors. We really wanted to be a light in the neighborhood, and we never want to get away from that. We celebrate the guys and ladies who coach teams in our community that volunteer in a variety of places that love their neighbors. That's who we want to be. So we, we do this on Sundays, we do groups, and then hopefully we're engaging our neighbors. Thank you for doing that with us. Let me pray. Father, I trust you with your word. It's your word. pray that your spirit would deliver it, that you deliver it in a way that would Soothe some of our souls, Lord, that would convict some of us, that would teach us, Lord, whatever you think needs to be done for us as individuals, pray, Holy Spirit, that you communicate it. Pray for some freedom, Lord. I, I know me. I know, I know that uh, this week I've, I've had good days and bad days. You know me, Lord. You know days when I really wanted to connect with you and days when I didn't. And I, I confess right now that I'm not worthy to uh, speak from your word, but your word has power nonetheless. And Lord, we sit in a room as folks unworthy, but made righteous by you, Jesus. So we trust you with these minutes we have together in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, before we were a nation in the 1700s, uh, there were, was a guy named George Whitfield. Evidently, he was a small man with a big voice, and uh, he met Jesus, and he started to preach the gospel. He would have been the Billy Graham of their time, right? So he traveled. He's from England. He preached all over England. He traveled to the uh, United States and preached the gospel here, and people would come from all over to hear him. He kind of, he was a little more dramatic than the normal preachers back in the day. The normal preachers would just take take it and read it, and you'd sit there, there'd be a little monotone, and so folks were used to that, and this guy, like, he was, he was dramatic, and so people would come out of the woodwork to hear George Whitfield preach. I got this quote this week by a guy from Connecticut, so we'll just call him the dude from Connecticut. I don't know who he was. He's from Connecticut. I met some folks from Rhode Island back in the back today, which is cool. We got, we got I don't if anybody's from Connecticut, welcome. Here we are, but this was a dude from Connecticut. Y'all from Connecticut? Yeah. Hey, Rhode Island folks back there, that's real close, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, here's what he said after hearing George Whitfield. He said, my hearing him preach gave, my, gave me a heart wound. 
And by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could no longer save me. I heard that this week. I thought, man, that line, my hearing him preach, gave me a heart wound. I know exactly what that feels like. Do you? Has, has God's word at some point wounded your heart or awakened your heart in some new way? I, I love the way that this, this dude from Connecticut hears this guy preach. He, he's, he identifies that he's got this heart wound, but I love what he says. He says, he broke my old foundations. Like my whole life has been built this way. And when I heard that guy preach, and he's preaching the same things that I'm preaching, it broke my old foundations, and I saw my righteousness could not save me. Pretty interesting. I, I imagine him being a good dad, maybe a good son, maybe a good husband, maybe a good employee at that point, maybe a good citizen. Maybe he was devoted to the king, or maybe he was in rebellion to the king, and he felt righteous by one or the other, right? He had viewed himself as righteous, and yet when he heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus, it gave him a heart wound, and he had, he had to deal with it. I've been praying this week that God would give some heart wounds this morning. I'm no George Whitfield, so I will not be able to preach like he could, but I have the same word that he used. We've been talking about grace here at Radius for the last few weeks through the book of Galatians. I read this this week. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, which I thought was really good. It's not opposed to effort. It's all right. You can hustle. You can get after it. But you can never think that getting after it will save you. And evidently, this guy, this dude from Connecticut, had been living his life feeling like he had built some level of a foundation of righteousness. And all of a sudden, when he heard the good news about Jesus, it got wrecked. He got wrecked, and he got wounded in his heart. I've been asking myself after I heard the quote, I wonder if he went to church. I wonder what he meant by righteousness. Did he go to church? Was he a guy that was just there every Sunday and just never made sense? And all of a sudden, hearing this guy, the gospel made sense. What I love about a room like this, we got all kinds of folks. You got all kinds of different relationships to church. Some of you are brand new to church. And, and you're just kind of wondering what we do. And so you peeked in today and you're curious and just for the record, since the beginning of Radius, you are our favorite people, folks that just curious. There are no bad questions. You can ask any questions. As a matter of fact, we've had all kinds of crazy questions that folks have had that have never been to church before. Some of, them, some of y'all are bold enough to get in a group and ask those questions face-to-face. You can ask me. You can ask any of our staff. No bad questions here. We named ourselves Radius because we wanted folks that were new to church that didn't know much about church to... Uh, Come hear about this Jesus that we believe in. Now, some of y'all from the South, and you're like, there's people that have never been to church. Bro, if you look at the stats, the majority, it's not the minority, the majority don't have a lot of church exposure anymore. So, welcome. Some of you are de-churched. They, they call you a group. That means you used to go to church, and you ain't gone to church in a long time, and you came in this morning nervous about what I'm going to say. Right? Like, you're wondering if, if I'm going to hurt you like you've been hurt in the past. Or somebody in here is going to hurt you. Or somebody's going to judge you in a way that's painful. I just want to say to you, the D-Church, that I'm, I'm sorry about the hurt that has been put on you at some point. Um, 
in the hope that this will be a place of healing. My experience is that we try not to, but even at Radius, we hurt people. And to be honest, sometimes we don't even know we hurt people. And as I've dealt with hurt people, sometimes they're hurting themselves. You can't, can't fully put that picture together. But if you're, you're one of those folks, you've been hurt, hurt specifically by the church, welcome. Hopefully this will be a good place to heal up. And some of y'all are just church. Like, you've been doing this a long time. This is what you do. You're disciplined. You're here. But when COVID was over, you were back, and you're like, oh, I'm church. I do this. This is what we do as a family, right? Uh, and yet, what we really, the optimal idea, what we're hoping will happen here, and if you've been here a while, you know what I'm about to say. Like, we're hoping that you're going to say, I am the church. Not be churched, but I am the church, which means that when you're out in the community, you're talking more about who than radius. We don't really want you to, I mean, you wear the radius shirt. We've got some cool shirts. You're welcome to them, right? Like, you wear the radius shirt, but at the end of the day, we want people to recognize who from you? Jesus. We want your identity to be tied to Jesus and not to radius. We're, we enjoy doing this together, but at the end, to be the church, your identity has to be connected to Jesus. And I, I wonder about this guy from Connecticut, just as he's processing and listening to this guy preach. If at some point the lights came on and he recognized that he never had placed his identity in Christ, and today was the day. Maybe it is for you today. So Galatians is a, a little letter. It's in the second part of your Bible, the New Testament, and it's written to a specific group of people in an area called Galatia. Shocker, right? They call it Galatians. It's got six chapters in chapter 2. There's the most famous verse in this book. As a matter of fact, I listened to Tony Evans preach this week, and he said if he had one verse to capture who the church was, he would take this verse. It's chapter 2, verse 20. I'm going to read it to you. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul writing. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's an interesting verse in the context. It's in the context of hypocrisy. So the verses prior to this verse uh, recount this interaction between two of the greats, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. They have this interaction. And Paul confronts Peter for his hypocrisy. So for some of y'all that are de-churched, like you've been frustrated with church. Here's our boy Peter. Like he wrote parts of the New Testament. He walked the earth with Jesus, and he already got a problem with hypocrisy. So if you quit church because of hypocrisy, you could have quit from the beginning because it's been going on for year after year after year for 2,000 years. Folks that follow Jesus fail, and Peter fails in this particular case. Just to give you the story before we read our verse again, they have a potluck at church. Anybody else grow up with potlucks? You go to church and have potlucks. Some of the old timers, like, that was, like, as a young kid, that was, that was a good day, baby. Like, you get the, the, the paper plate, and you just see how much you can put on. You try to get to the front of the line, right, because you don't want, want Miss Irma's green beans because they're nasty. You want your mama's green beans and somebody else's. You pile it on there, and you take it back to the place. And so you can imagine there's a church in Antioch, and they got a potluck going on. But guess what they did? They called Sheely's and said, we want you to come cater. See? 
They're like us. We had Chili's at our partner dinner the night. If you missed it, you missed it, right? Like, but we had, we had Chili's, and they had barbecue, and they had sweet tea all across. Everybody coming, grabbing their stuff. And, and Peter, being from Jerusalem, is up visiting Antioch, and when he sees Chili's, he's like loading his plate up. He's going with the mustard sauce. He's loading it up, and he's sitting with all the folks from Antioch and just chowing and enjoying his meal. And then some of the boys from Jerusalem came, unbeknownst to him, and they came and they said, you ever been to Sheely's and they got them long tables? And, and his, here's the group from Antioch sitting and, and the group from the Jews sat way down at the end of the table and they ain't eating none of what Sheely's. They brought clean eats with them, right? Like they, they brought clean eats with them and they sat down at the end of the table and they looked down at Peter and when Peter saw them, he, he kind of, yeah, <laughs> Cheryl does this. I'm like, baby, they know you got food on your plate. She put a napkin over it if she leaves leftovers, she put a napkin over it. Anyway, like a, a, he, he covers up his food, and he, he just starts inching his way down the bench. And the next thing you know, he's with his boys from Jerusalem who frowned on eating barbecue. And that's, Paul rolls in the room, and he sees what's happened, and he calls Peter out in the moment. I imagine him saying something like this, hey, Peter, you still got a little of that mustard sauce on your lip right there. Why don't you wipe that off? <laughs> he said, you might need a search. I, I, smell, I smell some pork on your breath, right? Like, you know, at last, some young people in the last group, they didn't know what a search was. Now, that's sad. Y'all don't know what certs are? It's a breath freshener. Anyway, like, they, uh, and so there's like this conflict between them. It's really not a fight because I imagine, to his credit, because Peter has done this before, when confronted, he repented. I imagine him repenting because it's the end of the story. It's like he owned it, and he probably like, get back down there and get on that barbecue. Right? Like they, there's, this, there's this interaction. It's an important interaction because Paul is calling it out because perhaps if we give up ground to grace here, it could curse everybody. Uh, today is 9-11. And so just to give you perspective as a church, who's at the table? Like what happened with 9-11, what's really dangerous is that we would take a whole people group and throw them into our, our enemies kind of conversation. You know who was at the table? Jews and Arabs. The Arabs had just come to Christ. They're sitting on this side, and Paul is with them. The first white guy to believe is probably Cornelius. He's a few chapters to go here in Acts. The first black guy, I mean, in the South, we're primarily white and black, right? The first black guy is the Ethiopian who gets led to Christ by, by Philip. So just for the record, us Americans, we were late to the game as far as believing in Jesus. These Arab folks are our forefathers. They're the first believers. It was first Jews in Jerusalem, and then it was the Arab folks. And best I can tell, the gospel makes no difference where you're from. It hunts. And God seeks to wound the hearts of men and women so that they would believe. And we are created as a new kingdom. So it's really, hey, I'm all for us going to get the terrorists, right? <laughs> that, was, that was good news when we... Uh, took out some of the terrorists, but it's really dangerous when we become so nationalistic that we take a group of people and we put them as our enemies. Because we, the church, know better, right? The world is full of sinners. This room is full of sinners. And the Holy Spirit's chasing us. And some of us believe, and it does not make us elite. It makes us saved from ourselves. So what's the verse say? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You catch that pronoun that keeps coming seven times, I and me. 
over and over. Usually if a guy says, I and me a little bit, you're wondering if he's selfish. I really believe Paul's saying this on purpose. He keeps saying, I and me, this is a personal decision. Uh, some of y'all as old as me used to go to movie theater. They had this thing they called the turnstile. Anybody know what that is? So it's, it's like a little metal bar, and you paid, and you hit the turnstile, and it clicks one over, and you could go on in. It stops the dude behind you. Like these days, you just come in and like wave your phone or something. I don't know what y'all, I can't figure out how to pay. It feels like I'm buying popcorn and I'm buying to get into the movie. Anyway, like the, they used to have these turnstiles at the movie. If you go to Subway, if you're in, in a big city, you go to Subway, they still got these turnstiles. It only allows one in at a time. I really believe as Paul unpacks this verse and gives us this mantra, this, this uh, pledge for those of us that are believers, it is this mantra of me personally looking at my own sin. Meeting my Savior, right? So my family ain't going to get me in. Cheryl and I met Jesus when we were kids. We've got a bunch of kids. We've got six of them. They can't come up to the turnstile and say, hey, I'm with Mama. Now, it, 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 it stops after Mama. And now each child is responsible with their, for their own relationship with Jesus. You ever hit one of those things? Like, like you think it's going to turn, you push it, in, and then it like catches me right in my thigh. I'm joking. There's nowhere to go. You're not supposed to be able to get through. It's a personal decision to follow Jesus. You can't walk up and claim that you've been at Radius Church at least 400 times, right? God's going to be like, 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 hey, go ask Pastor Reeves. He saw me there. I probably didn't, but, but, but go ask him. You can't claim where you've been when you get to the turnstile. You can't claim your, your origin, your, your ethnicity when you get to the turnstile. You can't claim your nation when you get to the turnstile. All you can be accountable for is yourself and whether you recognize your sin. And then did you believe that Jesus could save you from that sin? And perhaps... If he worked on you like he did me, eventually you find yourself individually just me gazing on him on the cross. Me recognizing that his crucifixion was my pathway to life. Just so you know, if you choose to walk through that turnstile alone, today, one at a time, this can be a lonely life. As a follower of Jesus, Jesus actually says that we're aliens. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a compliment. Set apart, alone. He says that there's a narrow way to heaven and there's a broad way to hell. There's just a few people on this one path. They go through the turnstile one at a time and look at their sin and look at their Savior and look at the cross one at a time, and as they believe, they make their way through the turnstile and get on the narrow way, which does not make them elite. It makes them saved. What might happen if you follow Jesus for a while, you might even feel a little bit alone from the people on the path of the narrow way because sometimes the folks on the path, pathway are about a whole lot of other stuff. They know Jesus, but they're about a whole lot of other stuff. And if you build your life around Jesus, you actually find yourself a little set apart from them. As a matter of fact, if you grow a lot, one day, like Isaiah, you might say to God, here I am, send me. We're praying for that guy or that lady at Radius all the time. Here I am, send me. Who's going to plant the next church, whether it's here, whether it's somewhere else? And in the end, I must give account for myself 
when I see Jesus. My mama won't be there. Nobody else will stand with me. I'm going to stand alone, and I'm going to face the living God, and I will give account. A.W. Tozer, a famous writer, says, Christ will be Lord or he will be judge. Every man must decide whether he will take him as Lord now or face him as judge then. Mark chapter 8 says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What if we were to go all the way through life and be a good guy or a good lady, accumulate a little bit of stuff, Pass it on to our kids and die, and maybe even die pleasantly at the very end, and yet not know Jesus. When we come to face him as the judge, there will be no difference between you and your easy life or simple life or great life and anybody else in the line. Everybody in that line will be judged and judged guilty. So we read this passage. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. First of all, it starts with me working on on who I am before him, crossing that turnstile, evaluating whether I believe that I'm a sinner and that I believe that I need a Savior and that the cross accomplishes my needs. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Just so you know what crucifixion is. Like some, some of you, like you've seen the movie, right? Like the, 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 the life of Jesus or you've heard stories and some preachers are actually make you about to pass out when you have all the details of the physical suffering. It's a horrible death, right? The Romans devised it to torture folks. It, it was a terrible way to die. We believe as Christians that that was an actual event, that Jesus actually died on the cross 2,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, most of the world agrees with us that Jesus was a real man that walked the planet. Most of them agree that he died on the cross. We debate a little bit on whether he rose from the dead or not, right? That's where the debate comes. We believe that he died on the cross, that he was crucified, that he was buried, and that he rose again. That's why we call it good news. That's what gospel means. When people say they're going to preach the gospel, if you heard the gospel, they mean good news. We call it news because it's already happened. We're pointing back to something that's happened. It's not some kind of advice on how to live in the future and you'll have a better life. We're looking back to an event you could have read in the newspaper, right, that went down, that somebody died, and it was Jesus. He was crucified on your behalf. But the writer says, I was crucified. What is he saying? Does he mean he was virtually crucified or actually crucified? He means that he was in God's sight. There, Romans says it, that he was co-crucified with Christ, which is a crazy concept. There's this little word in there. I wasn't great at English. I know this is a shocker to y'all, but uh, this little word, with. I was crucified with Christ. I'm not even going to try to figure out what, what type of word that is, adjective, adverb, whatever. Is it a preposition? Somebody help me. Where's my wife? Am I embarrassing you? Anyway, like, it's, it's this word, with. It's the idea of, uh, of a union. I was trying to come up with an illustration of union. My first idea was sweet tea. Right? Like, like some of y'all, my folks back in the back from Rhode Island, you need to ask a southerner how to make sweet tea, right? Like, if y'all learned yet, y'all figured out? You haven't figured out. All right, here's it, here it is. <laughs> so you got to heat the tea up. You got to boil the tea. Put the tea bag in there and boil it until it's to a full boil. And then, and you call it boil, by the way. Anyway, like, you... you <laughs> Then you put it in a larger container. You dump it out of the pot into a larger container. And then you put, in my house, we put two cups of sugar. How much y'all put in? But two cups of sugar, yeah, we'll die young. I know, but it's fun. 
You put it into the tea. Clee right here drinks it with no sugar, which makes no sense to me. Anyway, but like, so you got the tea and you put the sugar in. If you put it in hot, you could never separate. But all the time, you know, I go hang out with somebody from Connecticut, Connecticut, and they, uh, they want to put Splenda in it or something. I'm like, that's nasty. Like, like, and you can't put the sugar in when it's cold because the sugar goes to the bottom. So you got to get it while it's hot. And it's a union. You can't take it apart. If you work to take it apart, it's really difficult to take it apart. You got to boil all the, all the tea out to get back to the sugar. That wasn't even my illustration, but I got excited about it nonetheless just because y'all sitting up here. <laughs> I thought a better way to Im- demonstrate what it means to be a union is to talk about marriage because uh, when we get married, a man and a woman, the Bible says, we become one flesh. We become one. Two people become one. That's consummated, you know, on the honeymoon. So there's this physical union. There's this spiritual union. There's this deep connection between a man and a woman. Most of the time, the names change. It's, it becomes, they become one person. Uh, we celebrated 33 years ago, last weekend, uh, and uh, recognized that after 33 years, we're like, we're still together. We're still one, and yet, like, the very first year we had conflict, anybody else? The first year we had all kind of conflict because she was a Stuart and I was a Reeves and we didn't do stuff the same way. She had this personality and I had this personality and I thought I knew her and then all of a sudden she like got these problems with how I deal with the shower curtain. I can never figure that out. <laughs> Why would I put my clothes in a drawer? That seemed like a waste of time. Just sort them out on the floor. And there was all these things. Like we just had different ways of approaching life. And so though we were one, like we had all this conflict. Did y'all ever have like you have an argument? Uh, and, and you complete the argument, and you've been there, especially when you're young, you've been there for like four hours, and at the end, you can't even remember what you're arguing about. As a matter of fact, the key is to figure out who started this so we can start arguing again, right? Like, so like it's this, this thing, and I've learned now 33 years later, that still happens. We still, we still, because we have our own ways and our own wills, we hurt each other, and we don't come in alignment w- with one another at times. But this relationship, this one relationship, this union between Christ and you, (laughs) guess what? It's always your fault because he's sinless. He's he's, uh, about his glory, but he is not selfish. He's always about you. He always wants what's best for you. And so when you read this passage, I have been crucified with Christ. You are unified with Christ like a husband and a wife. You hung on the cross with Christ. You were there, says both Galatians and uh, Romans. So some of y'all know my, my daughter just moved back to this town. Her name's Mariah. She and her husband, Tim, come to this church. She was uh, in my home for 22 years. I was the man in her life, right? So, like, after her basketball game, she comes sit with highlights of my life. Come sit with me in the stands. We talk about the game, and uh, she was a joy, a joy to me, great joy to me. So then, all of a sudden, she goes away to college, and this kid comes back with her to my house. It's as if he was offering to take over for me, like, like she didn't have a great father or something. He came to my house like, what you, what you doing here? Like, the first time he came, he came to church. We were playing a little church. We were in a movie theater, and he sat back there with Mariah. But I got there early, and I got 10 ladies that were on the back row. I said, I need y'all to go with me this, today. I'm, I'm going to prank my, my, my daughter's boyfriend. And some of y'all are too sweet for this. I wouldn't ask y'all, but I asked some of the ornery ones back in the back. I know who y'all are. 
I know where y'all are. I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to get up there and say, every time somebody visits this church, we make them come up and sing a little song for everybody. <laughs> and I, I need you to go, yes, we do. And uh, we had a little saying. We worked out. So I did it. And I'm up here. Timmy's, Timmy's right back there in the back. He gets up. I said, but I guess that's you, Timmy. You're the only one. You're the only new person, man. So he gets up. He starts walking down the aisle. He gets about to right there. And I'm like, bro, we just messing with you. And they rolled. I'm like, but hey, that boy got some game, man. He's actually going to come up here and sing. I, was, I, was, I like this kid, I think. So he tried to return the favor a good bit later on April 1st. And uh, I ain't laugh. <laughs> My daughter, you can't be pranking me, dude, right? Like, like what, what is this? This is my daughter. Uh, he met me down at a little restaurant right here with Cheryl. And uh, he proposed to propose, right? Like, he, he, he came down, met with us, and proposed to propose. He did it, he did it in, a, in a great way. And we gave our blessing, and then there was a transition. By the way... If you're like an in-law in the room, you need to get out your piece of paper and write some notes down right now. So as soon as he decided that he was going to marry my daughter, and that thing was official since she was in, then I had to start changing my language because I knew I was about to be the old man, right? So when she'd ask me a question, especially while they were engaged, I'd go, what does Timmy think? It's a hard one to say, dads. Mom, y'all need to write this down, right? Like, like. I need to start changing my language because I could wreck their deal if I speak into it too hard. I got to ask, what does Timmy say? And then determine what my answer is based on his because he's about to be the new man. Now, since they've been married, I ain't got to ask a whole lot of questions, which is fine, right? So I want to bless this thing. I want it to have life and a life of its own. Now when they take a picture, they talk about Timmy's wife. They used to talk about John's daughter. A lot of times they called me Mariah's dad, right? That's really how it works. They called me Mariah's dad. And no, don't do that anymore. They call, they call it Timmy's wife. She has changed her point of reference. Her point of reference is no longer Reeves. It's love it. Matter of fact, sometimes I pull out my, my cell phone and talk to Siri, which Siri really struggles with my accent, by the way. And I'll go, call Mariah Reeves. The little thing just circle and circle and circle and circle. Like call Mariah Reeves. And then all of a sudden it hits me. She's changed her point of reference. She changed her name. Just Mariah Lovett. I got to say Mariah Lovett to get Siri, Siri to cooperate with me. She's changed who she is. I am now the old man because I want to bless the marriage. I'm cool with it. But the old man, your old man, the old you, hates the new man. And for the rest of your life on this planet will war for authority in your life and will whisper in your ear and try to destroy your union with Christ. So when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, that was done once, but it's also done daily. That's hard to explain. It was done once. I was crucified with Christ, so I'm saved. I'm saved for good. I'm safe in the hands of Jesus. But on the flip side, I find myself having to crucify myself daily. To allow the new man to live. So I must die to me. The famous theologian T.O. said, I love me some love. I love me some me. Terrell Owens, wide receiver for the 49. Y'all remember this? That's like the greatest quote a wide receiver has ever given. I'm like, that was the truth. Finally, somebody told the truth. I love me some me, but it wasn't far from the truth from you, right? And me. So in order to really be alive, This passage says that I have to die to me. 
it says live five times in this one little verse. So I have to die to live. It's a, uh, a great um, little book. It's called uh, My Upmost for His Highest. It's by Oswald Chambers. It's a classic. If you've never read it and you've been following Jesus for a little while, you ought to pick it up. They got like the old school version. It's old English, which I like. It makes me think harder. They've got, they've got a, a newer one that you could pick up as, as well. But he, he says this. What our Lord wants us to present to him is not goodness, nor honesty, nor endeavor, but real, solid sin. That is all he can take from us. And what does he give in exchange for our sin? Real, solid righteousness. But we must relinquish all pretense of being anything, all claim to being worthy of God's consideration. So let me, man, I, I need you to know that you don't need to clean up to meet Jesus. He wants your real, solid sin. If you'll take it and hand it to him, he will take it from you. And based on his work on the cross, he's going to hand back to you real, solid righteousness. So if you're new to church and you're like, why do these people sing? I see some grown men singing. That's why. Because we presented him our real solid sin. He allowed us to give it straight to him, and he gave us back righteousness. And even though some of us got some stories from this week that we're ashamed of, we come in this morning confident in our righteousness that's been given to us by God. And so we worship. Oswald Chamber goes forward and says this, Am I willing to relinquish my hold on all I possess, my hold on my affections, on everything Uh, to be identified with the death of Jesus Christ. So it goes beyond my sin. Am I willing to relinquish, interesting word we don't use a lot in in our times, relinquish all of it. If you had to fight through anything to relinquish it. My my oldest son was playing point guard for high school his junior year. He wasn't getting to play. Every time he got in, he turned it over, they sent him back out. Just killing me. I've told you this story because some of y'all live this story. You just live with seven-year-olds, right, like in the rec league or, or the, the cheerleading squad. Like somehow my identity was caught up in youth sports of all things. It seems a little embarrassing at the moment. And I, I had to come to a point with God. This was a spiritual endeavor. This wasn't something that I, I decided in another place. Like with God, I had to relinquish my desire for my kid to play. It was tough. I don't know why it was tough. I don't know why I'm weird like that. But it was healthy and right, and it it moved God back to the forefront as opposed to my desires. I had to die to myself and to what my will was. It wasn't that I didn't want him to play anymore. I just had it too high. Much more pertinent moment. I think we had our third kid. Maybe in our second. We have six. You can't really remember which one's which. But I love them. I didn't know I could love like that. I love my children. And um, I don't know, some of you younger families in the room, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you love them, and so then all of a sudden, there's some fear that starts sneaking in. And, and you start feel it, fearing for the things that could hurt them. You even start fearing for their life when they're really young. Anybody else? Like, and it can just grip you. And it, it, it was somewhat gripping me, and I had this, this moment. It's embarrassing. I was crying. I'm not a big crier, but me and the Lord trying to work this thing out, would I relinquish my kids' lives to the Lord? 
The Lord already knows when my kids, how many days they're going to live on the planet, right? But for me, releasing it, relinquishing it to him was this massive day for me. It's blessed the rest of my parenthood to relinquish them to the Lord. There's something good, right? There's something good. My love for them and them and their lives to relinquish them to the Lord gave me this great freedom. I want it for you. If you're a believer in the room, that's what it looks like to be a healthy follower of Jesus. There's always a lady in the room that needs to relinquish her boyfriend. I always tell you, we're willing to make the phone call. Just bring the phone up. We'll talk to him. We can be done with that today. Right? We'll be done with it. Like, he, really, he just he ain't good for you. Let's get him out of here. Right? Like, let's, let's solve this problem. You might need to lay your job before the Lord. Let me get a little personal. You might need to lay your politics before the Lord. Oh, yeah, we need believers in politics. Don't get me wrong, but you might need to lay it before the Lord, make sure he's the authority and that it's not too big. Your sexuality. You may just before the Lord go, am I right before what God's taught? Let me put him in authority. Shoot, it could be our house. It could be our position. What do you need to relinquish today? See, what the Bible says in this passage, which is, which is, Terrific, and it's our mantra, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, so I lay all that before him, and I hold him as the authority. I want him to reign. It's a really interesting line where he says, the life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God, and a line before Christ lives in me. Uh, I've always wanted to be able to sing. If you've been to church for a while, every once in a while I'll sing. Like once every three years. So if you missed it, you're not going to hear it again for a while because I did it a few weeks ago. I'm not very good at it. I just wish I could. So I married a singer. So at least I can put her, you know, in plots and listen to her sing. It's because we're one, right? But I can't. I can kind of hit the notes. It's okay. I'm probably average. But what if Whitney Houston, the greatest singer of all time, by the way, right? Like what if Whitney Houston, like, came into me? That's a little weird. I'm sorry. Like, but like, like. It's, it's, she came into me, and she started to sing through these vocal cords, right? Like, like uh, I would have to do a couple things. I would have to die to myself. I'd have to stop trying to do it my way and just let her go, right? Like, she would sing the national anthem right here, and you guys would be like, you know how hard she made her mouth go like that, like when she kind of hits the big note. Like, she hits the big note, and you guys would be awed by what I was doing, but she would really be doing it through me because I gave up and trusted her talent to sing through me. I know myself. After I sang a couple songs, I started thinking, well, I think I could improve this for you a little bit, Whitney. Let me, uh, <laughs> let, let me control just, just this one line, right? Let me change it for you. You know what quickly happened? I go back to looking like me, average. Go with me there, average, at least average as a singer, right? Like, like, but instead, I had this opportunity to cut this thing loose that was, that was way beyond who I could ever be. That is who we are. That's what we're doing here at Radius. We call it Radius because God puts you in your neighborhood to be more than just you, to do more than just be disciplined to take something to your neighbors, to actually love your neighbors, to truly love them. And Jesus, through you, when he lives through you, do amazing work. Last line. It says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, two weeks ago, 
We have a new staff member. He's 25. His name's Sean Coffey. He stood right here, and we had him share his story with our staff. We sit right in here, and then we spend some time praying for y'all. He started to tell his story. Uh, and he told a story about when he played for, he, he was up from White No, he played football. He was an offensive guard, way undersized. I think he's like 185. Don't quote me on this. You have to ask Sean. Maybe he's 200. He's an undersized guard. He was nasty, so I loved him, like, on the field. After the whistle blew, he's, he's in there getting something. I like that. I don't know. Y'all can be offended by that. But nonetheless, like, he's, he's getting after it. He was 16 years old, and we at Radius Church over at Radius White Knoll, we decided we wanted to feed the football team. So we fed him, and uh, I, just, I shared John 3:16 with him. And I would go two words at a time, for God so loved the world that he gave his. And I kind of worked through it like that. And uh, Sean Coffey's standing up here, and he goes, I still can remember when John went through John 3.16 and uh, shared the gospel with us as football players. He goes, I'd never really heard it before. It never made sense to me before. And as he's saying it, I was sitting right here while Sean was telling the story. I was thinking about my wife wasn't here. I was thinking Cheryl would make 100 pounds of mashed potatoes for them. Take her two days to make them. Right? So, so let's start connecting the dots. Those of y'all have been here at Radius for a long time. We decided to plant that church over. Radius, white, no. Out of here. My wife's serving at the house. <laughs> Slaving might be the right word for making those mashed potatoes. Making those mashed potatoes and delivering them. One time the coach complained that we didn't have mashed potatoes every time. I'm like, you talk to her. I ain't telling her to make potatoes again. Like, right? She's making the mashed potatoes, and, and they're loving it to give me. I, I have five minutes to talk about he gave. And Sean Coffey was there, and he was listening. Didn't believe. He just heard. It's a seed planted. Three years later, he was a sophomore at Carolina, and something struck him. I can't remember the exact story. And he began to ask questions about the gospel, the good news, that event we talked about. And uh, so he came back and he visited Radius White No. And there's a guy there, some of you know him, his name's Joe Pitts, and Joe Pitts saw him. And he said, hey, let's go to Waffle House and let's eat. And Sean Coffey came to Jesus, right? So, so a lot of y'all, that's, that's your story. He stood right here and he looked at our staff and he said, thank you. Thank you for serving and loving your radius. And thank you for playing churches. And he kind of connected all the dots for us. Now he's serving on our staff. He's doing, he actually does the same thing at White. No, I go listen to him and try not to cry while he's. Two words at a time. Going through John 3.16 for the White No football team. Taking what he's been given by Christ and giving it to somebody else. Hey, if that's you today, the Lord again, he's offering you this gift of his death on the cross. He's giving you the opportunity to be crucified with him, to die to yourself and live this life. And so we conclude almost every Sunday, 51 out of 52 Sundays a year with, with communion. And we would do what he said to do. You know, when we talk about 9-11, we often say, i never forget Jesus when he was preparing to die, brought his disciples together, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. So every Sunday, that's what we do. We put bread and juice out. A lot of times I'll just go, Lord, we're doing it again. 
We're doing it again. We're still remembering because this, for you, if you haven't met Jesus, like for the rest of us in this room, this is why we're going to sing loud in just a minute. Because we know we were lost and now he's made us righteous and he did it through that one event, that news from the past. And we want it for you. Jesus. Just simple words out of my mouth. But your word has power to take those simple verse. Some of us that have known you for years on end. And others that are just searching. And drive it into our souls. We want to wrestle with it now, but help us wrestle with it later. Pray that it would come back on us later in the week like you did for Sean Coffee, even three years later. And save some, Lord. Listen to us as we sing. We love you. Amen.